welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. This show is only for CCM Plus subscribers, and today we're talking Yeti Holdings. So if you're listening to this, thank you for signing up. Uh, some of the early members joining. Uh, I think this is our third episode. And today, oh, I just mentioned it, we're going to be talking Yeti. But if you are on Apple Podcasts, quick side note, please, if you want access to the Substack and Google Drive, send us your email at the email linked in the show notes. It is chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. I'll say that again, chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com. You're already paying, so get access to that. Basically, well, not for free, but for the stuff you're already paying for already. It is perfect to have this as a conjunction with listening to the show and the written research. All right, we're talking Yeti Holdings today, the maker of hard coolers and drinkware, although it is a bit more exciting than that first intro. So Ryan, why don't you introduce the company and give a background to their history? Yeah, Yeti designs and distributes a bunch of popular outdoor products that it sells through a few channels, but basically direct to consumer. So either online on their own store or through literal physical stores that they have. That's part of their new strategy is they're building out some Yeti stores and then wholesale channels. Um, they have tons of wholesale partners. You can buy Yeti stuff on Amazon. You can also buy- I would note that they classify Amazon as D2C, just for anyone anyone listening. Okay, Although, other, ones, confusing. Yeah. other ones include uh, REI. I believe there's some- at Walmart, basically, Dicks, yeah, tons of different and, places. Yeah. Um, but yet, if Yeti classifies each item into one of three product categories, so the first one is coolers and equipment. This segment includes hard coolers, soft coolers, cargo bags, and tons of other outdoor living accessories. So it's really, I'm not going to be able to go through all the products, but if you just go to yeti.com, you can see everything they have. It's a pretty diverse set of products. They have like dog bowls, dog beds. It really is sort of an outdoor lifestyle brand that spans tons of different product categories. Yeah. What's their tagline? Innovative outdoor products. So that's kind of, uh, they're, they're coolers and drinkware right now, but I guess they're, if you kind of want to they're teasing that they want to do a lot more than just that. Yeah. And the items are sold at a premium price. I don't have the exact um, premium over peers, but if you think about like Coleman or Igloo, those kind of cooler competitors. Um, and I mean, cooler in the sense of like a physical cooler, not like they are cooler, but uh, those competitors are typically at big discounts relative to Yeti. So Yeti, let's the, their biggest hard cooler sells for three hundred seventy-five dollars. You're not going to be able to get um, like a, a Coleman or an Igloo. You're going to get much cheaper, um, but it's also much more durable. And the coolers and equipment segment overall accounts for just under 40% of sales, uh, or it did last year. Also, all these items, or most of them are all customizable. So you'll get a lot of like corporate orders um, that want to customize with their company logo or people that, you know, want like their favorite 
college sports team or something different on their mug. Just different colors for a lot of the stuff too. Right. And so then the, the second one's the drinkware segment. This consists of a bunch of different drinking products that are made with stainless steel and they're designed for in quotes, no sweat, basically, um, there's no condensation on the outside of the bottle. So it includes tumblers, bottles, mugs, big jugs, <laughs> sorry, jugs and um, uh, like bar barware, I guess you could call it. Um, so like there's little wine cups um, mm-hmm. that are in Yeti's brand or uh, stainless steel cups. And then drinkware as a category accounted for just under 60% of sales. So drinkware is slightly larger than coolers and equipment. Were you surprised about that? Yeah, but I think it can fluctuate. And I'm pretty sure coolers and equipment had a harder time replenishing inventory than drinkware last year, which has been a point of uh, pain or a pain point for Yeti. Um, Let me give you, yeah, let me get some numbers here that uh, we'll talk about. We already mentioned the Substack and the drive. This will be available in chart form in the Google Drive. The percent that cooler and equipment was 43% in 2018, and now it's down to 39%. And drinker was 54% in 2018, and it was up to 59% in 2021. So there has been that trend. And for whatever reason, people love buying the drinkware stuff, even though it's a single product. And we'll talk about it. Sometimes supposed to be a single, you know, you buy once and you don't need one for five years. Yeah, I think a lot of people are collectors of them too. They have different a whole colors, bunch of yeah, different styles. colors, different styles. Um, and then the the last segment is their other segment. So it encompasses a variety of Yeti branded gear so includes shirts hats bottle openers they have like ice substitutes for some of their coolers uh there's a bunch of different accessory products um and this only accounted for two percent of sales in 2021 so pretty small but it just gives people that want you know that are big yeti aficionados or big fans it's probably just better it's like marketing stuff right really get the the brand out there yeah, the name on the hat and the shirts and all that good stuff. Yeah, essentially. Uh, and then Yeti's marketing and product development teams work together to identify and design new products. And then once items have been verified for go to market, Yeti partners with third party manufacturing and logistics partners to build and distribute their products. So uh, it's not just one manufacturer. They've got a diverse set of different manufacturer manufacturers located all around the globe. There's some of the US, I believe one in Canada, lots throughout Asia. Um, and in terms of just uh, geographic reach right now, they are in the US, Canada, Europe, I believe in Germany and the UK. I might be missing some countries over there, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. Those are their current markets. Um, but I think that touches all the basics of the business. As for the history, Yeti was founded in 2006 by two brothers, Ryan and Roy Siders, who were both born and raised in Austin, Texas. Um, they both attended college in their home state worked briefly at companies that manufactured outdoor goods. And then they grew up as sort of avid outdoorsmen and they were really big fishermen. And so apparently the, the uh, genesis for the idea was Ryan and Roy spent a lot of time fishing and they were frustrated that they couldn't stand on their coolers to cast a line. Um, and so they were like, basically their goal was we're going to build, let's try to build the mo- world's most durable cooler. Um, and the hard side cooler ended up being a huge success despite what was a lofty price point. And it's kind of been like that product itself became a big staple in hiking and fishing culture. Well, maybe um, not hiking because it's a little, a little tough to carry those, but I yeah, mean, well, the soft camp, coolers camping, as well. Camping and fishing culture. Yeah. Um, just, just 
that was kind of their their push into the outdoors market and then from there they expanded the reach of their cooler business throughout the country and then in 2013 was their first drinkware product this gave a, basically a different customer cohort um a lower price point introduction to the brand and that to me seems a little more of like a commoditized product but people love it and they stick with it and they buy a lot more and it's become the leading driver of sales which is uh pretty impressive over the last i think that must be nine years now and then the company brought in matthew Rentjes. i believe i'm saying that right hopefully yeah it's how spelling there <laughs> Uh, he he was the, he was brought in as CEO in 2015 to take over from Roy Siders. I think this was an effort to sort of professionalize the operation. Roy, I believe, moved to chairman of the board. I think he's out now. Um, but they they were planning to go public in 2016. They cited poor market conditions and delayed until 2018. That's when they officially debuted the stocks about a triple since its IPO price. So City's pretty solid returns. Um, the only other thing that's maybe notable is 2019 they started building their own stores um so kind of adding to that direct consumer channel and it's they are spending money to kind of build that out i believe they're at 13 total stores now across the us okay well that's more than uh that's three just in the last quarter then so yeah i think that that they, they for sure added one in california I'm forgetting, but I know on the conference call, they said they they were at about 13 total stores. All right. Well, we'll get to the stores more later um, in some of the later sections, but let's hit industry and competition. They've self-described themselves as, quote, innovative outdoor products as what they're trying to go after. So I'm going to look at the entire outdoor products market to see sort of what their long-term potential could be. And then I'll look at the individual products uh, for both equipment, coolers, and drinkware. So the total outdoor industry was estimated to be at about $54.1 billion and third-party estimates expected to grow to $82.6 million by 2028. You should take this with a grain of salt because almost all of these studies claim an industry is going to grow. So uh, is the outdoor industry going to grow? Is spending on the outdoor industry going to grow by 2028? Who knows? But in general, it has grown over the year and there has been an increase in spending, um, at least in some of the Western markets and Australia, excuse me, Australia and New Zealand. Um, however, Yeti is really only operating in a subsection of these markets right now. And even some of the drinkware isn't outdoor products. I mean, some of them, a lot of them can be used in an outdoor setting, but I guess that's just a lot of people use the, it in a corporate setting. Exactly. It, it, the corporate sales are not all outdoor sales, although they do claim that that's their market opportunity. So for coolers, the global camping cooler market is estimated to be only around $1 billion a year. So fairly small. And when Ryan goes through the numbers, you'll see that they actually have a fairly decent market um, market share there because maybe not on unit sales, but on dollar sales. And then on drinkware, the reusable water bottle industry was valued at north of $8 billion a year. Now, I'm not sure if this encompasses all of Yeti's drinkware products, but that kind of shows that um, I think the drinkware market just has you know more spend each year. Now, if we go into competitors, Ryan already mentioned some with coolers. There's Igloo, Coleman, uh, Pelican, I think Otterbox, although I, I'm actually confused if Otterbox is uh, coolers or... I think it's definitely uh, coolers. I'm pretty sure Otterbox also has phone cases. Yeah, that could be a different company, but Otterbox, they were the popular phone cases like 10 years ago. And then with drinkware, there's uh, the well-known stuff with Hydro Flask and Camelback. Now, 
they're generally like competing for middle class and above people in Western markets and maybe Japan as well to upgrade to premium coolers and drinkware uh, because this wasn't really a thing 20 or 30 years ago. It's kind of a new thing for people spending more on these type of products. And yeah, it's tough to value the tan here because I think it's sort of important. Well, generally we don't focus on it because they're sort of building out their own market opportunity. But when you look at how much money people are willing to spend on cool or are spending on coolers right now or are spending on drinkware and stuff, it's it's not that large, at least compared to the revenue they're bringing in. All right, let's hit management and compensation and ownership. As Ryan mentioned, the CEO is Matt Renches. Um, hope I'm saying that right. Again, he was appointed in 2015 and he has had a previous experience at Danaher for a decade, which is nice to see Danaher really, uh, you know, Hunter Beggar stock with a strong culture. Um, so Kaizen. Good to see. Kaizen, yes. That's their whole thing is they're trying to perpetually improve. And I mean, they have, and they're one of probably the best, I would, I, I'm, this is kind of a guess, but probably one of the best performing manufacturing stocks of all time. Yeah. And we don't need to go into a Danaher uh, deep dive today, but yeah, one of the best conglom- performing conglomerates of all time. So it's a positive note, I think that Renches is, uh, is coming from that. Um, he kind of you know learned his way because he's only 46 years old. So I think a lot of his corporate training was at Danaher, which I just like to see that. Chairman of the board is Robert Shear. So it's not one of the founders anymore. I think I, I didn't see really much of them at all on the proxy statement. Shear is a longtime executive at VF Corporation and they own North Face, Timberland and Ultra. Ultra are just um, outdoor shoes, kind of like Hoka's. I like to see that. It seems like there's good alignment there. Yeti's trying to build themselves into, I mean, I don't know if they're going to start acquiring companies. We might talk about that later, but they're trying to build themselves into sort of a similar type of brand as maybe North Face was or or Timberland kind of is. You want those premium products. So Shear, if he has that experience, it's probably nice to have him on the board. Executives are paid, if we want to go into compensation here, on their short-term incentives are based on sales and adjusted operating income targets. Sales, I guess, is fine. Adjusted operating income, you know, not the best. Long-term stock awards are extremely convoluted. Uh, I had, I don't think we need to go through all the details here. I don't think it's entirely relevant. We just need to get the basics. But they're generally based on three-year free cash flow numbers, total shareholder returns, and a few other things. Um, and then some of the long-term awards are granted with no requirements except keeping your job. So they're just the ones that they're going to grant to everyone, no matter what, if you're if you're an executive, yeah. Um, the adjusted operating income. And I think this is an important note. It was kind of highlight for me. The adjusted operating income and sales growth targets were 19 percent in 2021. That is higher than you see at a lot of companies, which I, I was very pleased to see. That total board compensation was only 1.27 million dollars in 2021, or only 0.16 percent of total gross profit. You know, that's just kind of a checkbox there to make sure they're not egregiously paying their board compared to how much money they're actually bringing in. Then if we look at executive officer compensation in 2021, it was $16.1 million or one point, basically 2% of total gross profit. So pretty fair there. Again, they're not egregiously paying their executive team versus the gross profit they're bringing in. Yellow flag, and this is only a small one, they hire a compensation consultant that is just a little bit it's just a negative indicator to me that they're willing to spend on things that might, you know, that they might not have that frugality at the general administrative expenses level. And then green flag, 
They prohibit the repricing of stock options, which I thought was a nice note. If we look at their cap or just ownership table, nothing too important to note. I mean, Renches owns about 0.5% of the stock, which is okay. It's fine. Um, and then you have BlackRock, Capital World Investors, and Vanguard Group at about eight, 6 to 8% each of ownership. So pretty standard. No, no, no founders really holding a big stake. Um, yeah. Do you want to hit earnings, Ryan? Pretty, pretty normal ownership and cap table there. Yeah. It's worth mentioning that the management team has done really well since taking over. I, uh, they may have had a new CFO come in, but great. The, yeah. Great performance. Renches has done really well. Um, and I think executive compensation didn't look too egregious uh, as a percentage of the overall business. As for the earnings, uh, if you're listening to this soon after it's released, they will have just reported. And so I'll, I'll kind of I'll contextualize it with my last twelve, the last twelve months numbers first, and then trying to get into the most recent quarter because the stock dropped pretty significantly after the quarter. But last twelve months, they've done about a billion and a half of sales. That was up nineteen percent compared to the twelve months prior. They have fifty-five percent gross margins. I think that's really impressive for a company that's literally selling drinkware and coolers. Kind of a testament to the brand, what people are willing to pay, and then seventeen percent operating margins. Uh, during the last twelve months, cash flow has been pretty diminished because they are replenishing their inventory and the wholesale channels in particular. Where they were having a hard time fulfilling the demand from the wholesale channels, and they just kind of got. They're, they're trying to recover on that front and they've done so, which means inventory balance has shot up, which has really hurt cash flow because it's all tied in their inventory. That kind of leads into the most recent quarter, which was the theme of the quarter. But um, as for the top line numbers, $420 million in revenue, up 17% year over year, came in a little under what they were guiding for. Um, and they, they highlighted some of the, um, some of the ch- online as a weak part of the quarter that they're, they're having a hard time generating online sales like they would have thought. So direct to consumer sales grew 14% year over year, whereas wholesale grew 21%. Uh, direct to consumer is still a little bit larger, but they're not that far away from each other. And then they, they mentioned, uh, as I said, inventory levels were understocked at a lot of the wholesale places. So that may have elevated the sales for the for this quarter in particular and led to the higher growth rate. And then their gross margins were down pretty significantly from last year. So 52% versus 58%. They said fuel and freight costs were really high. There was higher product costs and then foreign exchange also impacted. So kind of a whammy on all those. Um, but they said it was improving throughout the current quarter and they, they were seeing some some positives there. As for other notes, um, they had negative $75 million in operating cash flow this year. Inventory levels increased by 121%. It's still, I believe, inventory as a percentage of their revenue is still below their pre-COVID levels. And during COVID, they were really um, pretty much out of a lot of their items. I was actually shopping on there, and there's a lot of the items that you basically just couldn't get. And so they're trying to replenish those. And so cash flow was elevated last year. And or maybe two years ago, and now it's reverting where it should hopefully stabilize over time. Yeah, let me get a, I made, since that was very important, I made a, a chart for the drive and the substack of conversion from free uh, operating income to free cash flow, which is kind of a good metric of how much of their profits they're converting to, pro, uh, to converting to cash flow for shareholders. And if we look for 2018 through 2021, so those four years, their conversion changed kind of sporadically each year, but the average actually came out to 102%. So 
over the last four years, they've generated almost converted almost all their operating income to free cash flow, but some years look way worse than others. And right now it's not looking as good. And for reference, their operating margins have tended to fluctuate between 15% and 20%. So pretty, pretty solid uh, operating margins there, especially for a manufacturing business. The last thing I'll mention, they spent $26 million on capital expenditures. Part of that is recurring where they're going to constantly be building out new products and trying and testing stuff. But then they're also building out those new stores, which is costly as well. So expect, pay attention to free cash flow over time because uh, that is a big part of the business. And they also, there's maintenance capex involved in there as well with upkeep on uh, existing product lines. And then last thing, I guess, balance sheet and liquidity. Pretty simple balance sheet. Uh, they have $91 million in cash and equivalents, $108 million in total debt. 25 is 25 million is due in the next 12 months. But given how much they've typically generated in cash on an annual basis, debt is really not a concern here at all. Um, and that's something they actually, throughout COVID, when they were uh, fortunate to be generating tons of cash, they paid a lot of that debt down early. And then the, the only other note, on that inventory, apparently year over year, their inventory units grew by 70%. So part of the increase in inventory is also the pricing of the item. So they did raise prices recently. If you're raising prices, it and I mean it's gonna increase the the nominal value so of what your they're inventory. Marking, yeah, what they're marking their inventory at. Yeah. And then they also mentioned that most of the inventory growth in units came from coolers and equipment, which was apparently constrained relative to historical levels. And they did say, there's a quote in the conference call, they said, we're actively managing our purchase orders with our suppliers to reflect updated demand expectations. That was a little bit concerning. And I think that's kind of that whole, the whole inventory situation, I imagine, is what's really leading to the sell-off in the stock that they've seen over the last two days as of us recording this. it's going to make the cash flow multiple look higher than it probably is or higher than it should be in the future relative. I guess they are generating way less cash than they should on an annual basis, typically from here on out. So uh, just keep that in mind. That leads right into the valuation. So when you're, when we're recording this, the valuation is based on a stock price of $44 and 47 cents. It's been pretty volatile. So we have a dynamic valuation that is upstates for you in the, and that'll be on the, Again, I'll be a broken record here in the Substack and the Google Drive. So reference that, I guess, when you're going over any of the show notes. But as of this recording, the enterprise value is approximately $3.8 billion. And if you look on the 2021 financials, which I think is fine, uh, fine to use here for a company like this, the difference isn't going to be that great. Um, their enterprise value to operating income is approximately 14 and their enterprise value to free cash flow on trailing numbers is approximately 42.5. So again, like Ryan mentioned, the cash flow looks a lot worse than the operating income right now. But over time, historically, they've converted a lot of that operating income to free cash flow. So I think if you're an investor in this or looking at this company, you got to just, that's an important metric to track. How, you know, is there a difference between operating income or net income or whatever and free cash flow? If there is, how big of a difference is it? Is the trend moving in the wrong direction? Is it all based on inventory? Lots of questions there, but definitely something important. Um, lastly, on valuation, let's look at share dilution. Potentially dilutive securities are about 1.5 million versus 86 million shares outstanding today. This ratio has been going down for the past few years. Um, so 
They've gotten better on the SBC front, and it looks like they've still been able to retain employees. They actually have less than a thousand employees, which is really nice to see. Um, a company that seemed to have a good, like um, the right amount of employees versus the size of the company. If you kind of get what I mean there, Ryan. Yeah. And last note, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the buyback. We didn't mention that they had a small buyback that they exhausted, took down the share count a decent amount. And without the heavy SBC, they said they're going to probably do that in the future. Um, but they didn't do that last quarter. It was in, they finished that in Q1. Yeah, that was, uh, it was $100 million. So relative to their market cap, which I think is around 4 billion, not yeah, a Pretty decent yet. amount. Um, and I think they, initiated it and exhausted it in the same quarter so yeah there's the liquidity there and if they start generating cash again you'd likely see them doing that because they're paying down all the debt um and it's kind of going away all right let's move to anecdotal evidence ryan this will i guess be a it's, it's an important one for this stock um what are your thoughts on yeti i really like the brand um i'm a little indifferent on the drinkware category um same. i yeah. think i i use a hydro flask um and the two products feel very not, similar not to often me. I see with those plastic bottles, not the shame. <laughs> don't, don't plastic shame me on the podcast. The uh, I, I I use it at home. The the hydro flask. Um, it doesn't really make a difference to me on the drinkware, but I do like the brand, and I do think it actually has a bit of this okay. out, outdoorsy vibe. Hundred um, like, percent makes you feel, I guess, I don't know, like, like an outdoors person, even though maybe I'm not the most outdoorsy person in the world. As, as someone that's more in the outdoor, not, it's not an industry, just realm, I guess. I don't know what word to say there. People, people love Yeti. I mean, they're getting Yeti coolers or the people that copy Yeti coolers, but can't charge as much. Yeah. I mean, I, the only item I've gone on there and considered buying myself where I've gotten some stuff as gifts was t-shirts, like clothing. So, oh, they're it, like Patagonia. Everyone, oh, yeah, yeah, almost like Patagonia in a sense. Um, it just kind of it does actually, you know, everyone says brand send a message. I do think in this case it's very true. What, you, what about you? Uh, yeah, sorry, I thought you were saying something there. I, I think I generally agree here. I, if I was looking to buy a cooler, um, if I was looking to buy, well, I guess I'm not really looking to buy the drinkware. I kind of agree with you there, but. Even those bags that they came out with that really aren't really well known among consumers right now, but it's only been a couple of years. I would definitely go to them first because I know the product quality is high. I know it would last for like 10 years. And they have that, they've captured for myself that distinction as the premium brand within these niches, which is tough to build and tough to compete against. And it's kind of the, their historical operating margins. Um, I think are, you know, they, they, it's just an example of that where like we, we have this, you know, idea in our head about the brand, right. And sometimes that doesn't translate into what the financials look like, but that idea of the elevated brand that we have for Yeti actually translates to higher operating margins. Yeah. All right. Let's move to future growth opportunities. Ryan, I see you took the cliche, but it works here. That we're well, not supposed to use, but it actually has been a really strong highlight for the company. So yeah, and I'll say that I, I try to think of as many other ones as possible, but there's pretty much two new initiatives that they're pouring money into, aside from like the typical, like they're looking at new products and they're um, 
constantly testing new initiatives, but, or maybe trying different marketing channels, but the two that they're really allocating money to are the new stores, which you're going to talk about and the international growth. Um, so far, Yeti has expanded its presence, as I mentioned, into Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and Europe. Last year, international revenue, the international revenue accounted for just under 10% of sales, but it was growing by triple digits. So the, the, the blueprint here is to get connected with the biggest wholesalers in the countries. And then the, they haven't done this yet, establish your own stores. So before they get their own stores in these places, I think it's good to get the brands and popular wholesalers to kind of get those new customers affiliated or uh, and drive people assimilated to with it yeah, and drive people to their website as well. Right. And so um, they've seen good growth there. I would think without having been to Australia or New Zealand that it fits the outdoorsy culture. Um, yeah, for sure. Europe a little bit less. Canada too. Canada, Australia, New Zealand. It just feels like a perfect brand for that. Yeah. So I guess the the other benefit of international growth is that uh, so brands, consumer sentiment on brand can, brands can change really quickly, which is like uh, I guess foreshadowing. That's my low light. But um, having a diverse having diverse geographies limits the risk of one country ruining the brand entirely. So like if you have really bad, so in 2016, if this would have happened earlier, it would have been a problem, but in 2016, they were very popular with like hunting and fishing culture. And they had a dispute with the NRA. If America was their only market and that was a lot of their customers, it could have potentially been sort of detrimental to the brand. Um, now at that point it really didn't have that big of an influence and they had diversified product enough from just that specific cohort that they were fine but i think geography if you lose one geography in this case and you have a whole bunch of different presences elsewhere you're gonna be fine yeah that i agree with all that all right mine is flagship stores um they currently have and correct me you said 13 because i was going off the q1 numbers because during some of the research it's kind of bad timing when they're about to report right before they have 13 of these flagship stores open, it, right? Confirm yeah, for me while I'm talking here. But it, may, it may be 13 by the end of the year. Gotcha. Okay. Well, generally, they don't have very many open, but they're in the South, Texas, and the Southwest United States. Um, I don't, again, we haven't been because we're from the Pacific Northwest, but they seem to be fairly large. They seem to also have a bar slash restaurant concept to keep people in, and they seem to be more of a... I don't want to say Apple because Apple is not really the best comparison here. We talk and RH isn't also the best comparison here because it's definitely different. But Lululemon, maybe Lou, yeah, it's honestly, like that, maybe like almost much. a Williams Sonoma type. Like they're trying to make it fairly big, not like they couldn't be in every city in America. They, they may only have a market opportunity of doing a hundred of these or something like that because they need I, to be in a big market. Yeah. But they, they want to be big. I drove by a store once in Florida and it looked pretty popular, but. That's there my only anecdotal evidence. Oh, well, here's some more. Uh, they have great reviews. I was kind of perusing Google Maps. And uh, here's, here it is. Here's the quote. So rare to see brands behave like this. Literally sell mugs and coolers. But I was, all caps, dying to spend because of the perfect story being told throughout the store. As a consumer, Yeti hit my whole story, even down to my dog. That's, I mean, you can't get any better than that, really. So it seems like the stores are doing great. There's a large opportunity for them to increase their CapEx spend here. I would think any city with over 500,000 people it could work in, maybe maybe a million, something like that. 
um, and it can work in you know a lot of the international markets as well. So pretty pretty big uh, growth opportunity there. All right, highlights and lowlights, Ryan. What did you like and dislike about Yeti? I really like their marketing strategy, and I think it's different than uh, the typical company because they focus uh, on that storytelling aspect that we've really talked about and like that review talked about kind of like a nike model um and that often means you know you read through the conference call and you see all the money that they're spending on marketing ski competitions initiatives where it's stuff that is hard to like specifically track the return on ad spend but you know it's actually helping so one example this quarter there was a viral user generated content series i think on tiktok primarily where customers posted videos of yeti products surviving like crazy conditions so i think Smart. it was like a cooler Smart. and a fire and it like yeah. and it like held the ice like the ice stayed cold right there like yeah, yeah. um it, you don't know how much sales that event specifically drove to yeti but you know it's good for the brand and so they're doing stuff that's really sort of grassroots. They have a lot of brand ambassadors. Um, they are trying to be that outdoors lifestyle. And so often that means doing stuff that isn't just Google AdSense or uh, mm-hmm. what is it? You know, Google search. Yeah, Google search or Facebook ads yeah. or Instagram ads. Although Instagram probably organically is fairly important for them because people like taking pictures with their Yeti cooler. It's kind of a signaler. They're po- I mean, they're popular on social media apps for sure. Right. Uh, oh, I guess yeah, other on. yeah, other ones. Uh, th- they successfully transitioned to the direct to consumer model. Um, so th- they've really seen a lot of good growth, especially during COVID on the website. I think that's a testament to um, how much people love the brand. They aren't. It, it shows that they aren't looking for coolers. They're looking for Yeti coolers, or they're you know they're looking for yeti mugs yeti shirts it's not just oh i went to a wholesale channel hey, let's not so, hype up the shirts the other category is it's tiny person. whatever but the, the the point is people are going to the website specifically as opposed to just seeing it in a wholesale or like a big store like an rei and say no that's kind of cool like people are actively seeking it out and then low lights um i really only have one and i don't it's that I don't like brand driven moats, um, unless it's something that's been around for a long time, multiple decades, or it's something that sells an unhealthy addiction, like uh, caffeine, nicotine, sugar, salt. We yeah, talked about this or, or healthy addiction, but something where there's some sort of quite addictive, habitual, yeah, habitual stuff. Yeah. Um, in, in other areas, consumer sentiment can really change fast. And I think that's still a realistic risk for Yeti today that, they do something to jeopardize the brand. Yeah, it requires a lot of brand management. Yeah, I was going to say delicate nurturing, which is probably the same thing for management. Uh, yeah. All right, my highlights, biggest highlight to me. Well, I guess the brand is also a huge highlight, but the biggest highlight I like management. I know it's tough to get a full grasp when we're just looking at a stock for a week here, but there's some there's some things I really liked, and here's the list. They're including longish tenure. So six years isn't that long, but Ranches has been there a while. It seems like he's going to be there for a long while. Uh, Dan and her pedigrees from two executives. So you have the CEO plus, I believe, the chief sales officer. Um, Another thing, reasonable compensation and SBC expenses, reasonable employee count and expense structure. Uh, Share repurchase strategy seems sound, although it doesn't look great right now with the stock tanking, but... 
And then lastly, solid operating targets for yearly bonuses. I get sick of seeing 6% target growth for huge bonuses. And this was, rat, you know, it seemed really rational for aligning all the value, for uh, aligning all shareholder interest. Now, second highlight here, the brand quality. It's very strong. Um, like Ryan mentioned, they seem to have learned from other top American brands like Apple and Nike with their advertising strategy. And I think if slash when more stores open up, brand awareness and quality should only grow. For example, if there's one in the Seattle area, I'm not sure what part of the city it would work best in, but it would definitely help, especially if, say, they're rolling out their bag product. You get a lot more people in the store. They're like, oh, I didn't even know Yeti had these $300 bags. They look cool. They have super great durability. I can take them on outdoors trips and as you know, luggage. I'm going to get those as well. It's Yeah, I mean, it's almost... Uh, it'd be similar to Warby Parker or Lululemon where having a store helps increased online sales because you build a little more trust for the brand. Yeah. And we don't need to say virtuous cycle because that's probably overrated in that regard. But again, it can help. They all can work in tandem. Then lastly, the international expansion has been incredibly strong. Uh, let me confirm the number here. Again, this will be sent out with the Substack and Google Drive. But since 2018, international revenue has compounded at 99% a year. So, I mean, just phenomenal numbers on, on I'll, international. I'll be up from a low base. A low base of only $16 million, but still. All right. Low lights for me. We talked about inventory. Cash conversion in inventory are going to be concerned here. It's just the type of business they're in. And a quality business, in my opinion, consistently turns profits into cash flow. Yeti hasn't proven it can do that yet. It's not necessarily something that would keep me entirely out of the business, but I think it's it's means they deserve a lower uh, multiple. I think in general, um, all else equal. Yeah. And the pandemic may have made things difficult for these inventory things, but it's still concern, something to watch out for, not something I like. Lastly, other concern is, uh, and it kind of tails into what Ryan was talking about about habitual and addicting products. It's how low recurring a customer purchases products from Yeti. Um, maybe someone that's wealthier might purchase like one thing a year. You know, some people can be really spendy, but both the drinkware coolers and even the bags are meant to be purchased probably like as a pitch once every five years, it's kind of their thing, you know, it's durable stuff like that. Um, that's fine. You know, with everything costs $300, but, and the customer comes back again, but it just makes compared to maybe an apparel company, um, and especially, uh, you know, food or, or, or nicotine type. They are company. an apparel company. Yeah. Well, <laughs> all right, Ryan, let's talk. <laughs> we don't need to bring up the shirts again, but it just makes the business just because of the market they're in lower quality. In my opinion, it's just harder to, uh, it's just generally harder with your strategy when you're not selling something. And it, maybe that's a, just a testament to someone, someone like Apple, you know, because they're yeah. only selling something like once a year. Yeti's even less. It takes a lot of brand management. They're doing it, but they're just in a harder spot than, say, a Starbucks, who has made a lot more missteps than Yeti, and yet their, yeah. their business is absolutely ginormous. All right, bull case. Ryan, what do you think here? The, the bull case for me is that a combination of two things. the They continue to roll out new products and then iterate on existing products, which helps keep sales growth relatively high in the domestic market. So the U S and then international, they, they find the same sort of brand love in those markets. It's hard to say what the ceiling is going to be for the international. I, I really have no idea, but if those two things occur, I imagine that they will have at least 10% revenue growth. And at 
the current price, if they get to 10% revenue growth, let's say a year for the next five years, and then they can get cash flow margins into that 15 to 20% range, right, right around operating margins where they can convert their operating income into cash, how they have historically, you're going to have good returns as a shareholder from here. Yeah, I had similar stuff. Um, you know, given their solid expense structure, really rational on the employee accounts and what they're spending on, you know, R and D as a percentage of revenue, uh, advertising as a percentage of revenue, and still being able to grow, I wouldn't be surprised if this business can achieve twenty-two to twenty-three percent operating margins when shipping costs come back down to earth. Like we talked about in the recent earnings, gross margins to take quite the hit recently, and if inflation continues and stuff like that. Um, maybe, maybe gross margins don't expand back up to closer to 60%, but at the current enterprise value operating income of 14, which is based on the 2021 numbers, there's not much, the expectations aren't that high here. If revenue grows at 10% plus a year and management buys back stock, I mean, we don't need to go any more complicated than that. All right. right. Fair case, Ryan, what could go wrong here? I think we're going to have fairly simple ones, but you know, still concerned. Yeah, it's with something like Yeti, it's a little difficult to quantify what the bearish scenario looks like. But if yeah, something happens where yeah. they lose their spot as the premier outdoor, outdoor lifestyle brand, momentum totally kicks in into reverse where sales compress. When wow. sales compress, you're going to have margins compress and probably your pricing power is going to go away if you're not the premier brand. So margins will kind of double compress. And then, I don't know, it's just with retail, that momentum can really like bite you in the ass on the way back um, if you're not able to maintain that brand reputation. So I don't know. It looks like I think the bearish scenario is they end up like Under Armour. Yeah, you would have the same pitch from Under Armour 10 years ago from the bull case. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. There's just always that there's always that risk with brand driven moats. Yep. And management, I guess that makes management super important here. All right. My bear case. Um, I think these are, well, I guess they're slightly different, but I do agree with your bear case. Uh, I have two here that could just kind of maybe just limit their overall cash flow generation. And that's margin deterioration from input costs. They have both commodity inputs. Um, you know, plastics made out of oil, all that good stuff, and and steel and stuff like that. And then shipping. So shipping costs have been up. They've fluctuated a lot, uh, but we'll see. And then I also have a little bit of a concern of the size of the addressable market. Yeti has really shown no signs of slowing down on their revenue growth. So maybe this is unwarranted, but I believe if they want to, you know, graduate, what are they on pace for this year? Like a billion in revenue or no, probably less. If they want to graduate to maybe a multi-billion dollar a year revenue company, let's just put it that way. They're, they did a billion and a half over the last 12 months. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. Okay. If they want to graduate to say a $5 billion, um, so they're doing a billion and a half now, let's say if they want to graduate to that level, they're going to need to go into new product categories. And it's harder to win when you're going to these new product categories. It just requires, um, I don't know, it requires just... Uh, you know what? Like, for example, it's unpredictable. Yeah. And the bags, it's just going to require a lot of marketing, a lot of convincing among people to know that these things even exist. Um, here's a question Should they start acquiring other outdoor brands? I can think of a lot of products that I see at REI that could fit within their portfolio. You know, 
They, I feel like. Uh, I think they've done really well keeping everything in house, like keeping everything. Well, being the brands the Yeti would be separate. Brand. They'd be separate. I mean, it, you know, but it's just. I mean, part of the like, benefit of a Yeti product is it's a Yeti. Product. I know I, exactly, but they could own other ones. Uh, what like Newell? Like okay, Coleman is owned no, by no, Newell not, Brands. I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about cooler or drinkware competitors. I'm saying if they want to get into other outdoor categories, I'm thinking of a Nemo, the maybe the but, premier company in like tents and they've done a good job. Like they've done a good job doing it themselves. Yeah. But if you, if they were going to compete with a Nemo and this is really not that relevant, it's kind of a sidebar, but if they're going to compete with a Nemo, they would have a tough time because the same thing if Nemo came out with a cooler. Because everyone for tents and uh, and sleeping pads and stuff like that, the premier ones, kind of the Nemo's, like the similar ones. I think there's just a lot of stuff but in the outdoor uh, category that fits into their kind of premier stuff, and they keep the brand separate. But it's just a way to allocate capital, and I think get a good, good return on that investment with you know durable products that probably have good margins. Yeah, I just don't know if it would be that much more of a like. Obviously, you're going to have to pay. A premium probably Maybe. to acquire them we'll see, of course and you know like the 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 brands being acquired know that it's going to be harder for them to do it in-house because they have to pour all that money into marketing so i just don't know if it's a huge benefit and they don't have any like th- there's no benefit for a nemo to be under the yeti brand that i can think of uh yeah fair like, they're already all at rei and stuff so it's fair all right more or less interested ryan more I don't, it's it's so tough because there's always the risk that it goes the way of like an under armor or maybe a, a gopro there that's a fair point although gopro there's been some good bull cases on gopro recently but yeah the business has changed episode. a bit but yeah. I, I don't know i am more interested because i really like the brand and i do think this is a kind of company that should trade at a discount just because you're taking the risk that the brand sustains over time plus in the but yeah it has come down. The valuation has come down a lot over the last year or so. If you're if if this is trading at let's say, let's say they convert all of their operating income to cash, like they have historically, kind of evened out over the next ten years. This is a good price. Yeah. But yeah, I just it feels like a big risk, and I just tend to stay away from retail. Yeah, it's harder. It's harder for sure. Yeah. I guess I'm really in the exact same boat. I'm sorry for the listeners that we have no, not any major disagreements on this one. But yeah, I, I do like the price. I have like a 20 year threshold for com- for retail companies. Like you have had oh, to, 20 year, ten, they need a 20 year tenure. Yeah. Like you have to have been around for 20 years and people liked you for 20 years and you withstood multiple like uh, Changing the risks culture. to the business. <laughs> yeah, like, we talked about in that power hour. Sometimes trends change. People like wearing short shorts and long shorts. Sometimes people might like a different type of cooler. Who knows? And yeah, it's un- it's unpredictable. Um, but I'm more interested. It could be one that we watched ten bag, and it would be very disappointing because we we kind of saw the bull case here. But I think there are definite risks here. It's on my watch list for sure. Um, I think at a I don't know. I would want to buy at a big enough discount, but I don't know what that discount is. Yeah, yeah. It's hard it could to be now. It could be right now. It could be right now. I mean, you can see there's an easy path to good shareholder returns here if they keep executing. All right. 
stock for next week, which is actually not next week. Next week is Disney with Brad Freeman. And actually tomorrow there will be a release of the first Arch Capital episode on why we own Spotify, kind of doing a breakdown on that stock and an update on the company. Uh, We're going to be doing one of those each month. But for two weeks from now, Ryan, what is your choice for the listeners? I'll let you pick between two audio companies. So kind of tailoring off the Spotify episode, Sirius XM or iHeartMedia. Oh, iHeart's public? They are. Wow. I'll have to look that up right after. Uh, What would be good to do in order? I think Sirius would be good to do first, and then we can do iHeart at like whatever in in September. So let's do Sirius XM. Similar businesses, actually. They've kind of got the satellite radio core business, and then they're investing in new audio initiatives. So all right, little tease. Little tease there. All right, that's going to do it. Thank you all for listening. Uh, I guess we don't have to give much disclosure on, well, we should do the standard disclosure. Thank you all for, for subscribing again. We took a big risk to launch CCM Plus. And so far, you know, you're the ones that have joined. So really hope you'll stick around and listen to an episode each week. All right. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital. Clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.